Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. One of the reasons that some of us like to read about the Civil War is because it feels so good to leave the 21st century with its discordant politics and return to a simpler time. Of course, the country was torn between North and South, but at least within the armies themselves, everyone was on the same side, no longer Republican or Democrat, but all for the same cause. And then along comes the book, A Republic in the Ranks, Loyalty and Dissent in the Army of the Potomac. And it turns out that domestic politics didn't stop when a person put on a uniform. We'll talk with the author, Professor Zachary Fry, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight, most familiarly from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, but not supposed to be here. Definitely not speaking for the university. They don't know I'm here. The system does not know I'm here. The building is empty because of the COVID-19 pandemic. But uh, tonight, Mrs. P at home is doing a graduation uh, event online for her 10th and 12th grade students, and she needs all the internet we can muster. So I've crept back into the building for one night, but not speaking for anyone else's said a moment ago, likewise my guest speaks only for himself, not for any other organization, as we always do here. So it's very strange and quiet here in the Brewster building in May, May 27th of 2020. The air conditioning is not on, there's no one else here, they've just waxed the floors, there's no furniture out in the hallways. It's uh, it's a, a strange time to be about. It's a strange time not to be on the road visiting Civil War 
battlefields and other sites, which I have done for the last, I don't know how many years, this time of year, uh, going along with Stephen Ambrose historical tours, trips. The effect, in fact, is such that I woke up this morning and in the last several mornings in the first thought on sensing the, the weather, that it was May, it was springtime, uh, my first thought was, where am I? Is this Gettysburg today? Are we in Richmond? Are we at Manassas? Uh, what's on today's agenda? And then I wake up and realize, no, Greenville, North Carolina, not not on a tour for the first time in years. And it's a, uh, a strange feeling. My wife has suggested that I actually should get out of the house and go on a, a personal battlefield tour, go you know, drive to Bentonville or uh, Aversboro or New Bern or somewhere, which I think is really a noble suggestion on her part. Uh, if I were to do that, I'd be gone for an hour and a half driving out, uh, spend a few hours walking around, then hour and a half coming back. So she would be alone in the house without me talking to her about Civil War history or other things for six, eight, nine hours in a row. Uh, and for her to offer, make that offer, is incredibly generous on her part. And uh, uh, just the sacrifice, I, I really you can see how much I appreciate her being willing to to uh, to put up with that. Uh, and actually, she does deserve a break like that because she's home now with the 10th and 12th graders online. If you're not going uh, Civil War touring this summer, since most of us are not able to do that, I did come across something interesting online this week. Uh, an auction, Rock Island Auction Company, is presenting the Paulson Brothers Collection of Civil War Canon, uh, June 5th, 6th, and 7th, uh, being auctioned off. So if you have been hunting for an incredibly scarce uh, wired 12-pounder rifle, or if you're just looking for another 10-inch siege mortar to add to your collection, uh, they've got those. And uh, the online catalog is at... Uh, www.rockislandauction, all one word, .com. I'm not getting paid by them. I'm not planning to buy any artillery pieces, but I thought it was an interesting uh, thing to do. Hopefully there will be tours for us to go on uh, in the fall. October 9 to 17 is still on, as far as we know, for Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours. You can follow them at their website, and you can follow us here to find out who's next on the show at impedimentsofwar.org. Last week, of course, we were supposed to have Tim Smith on the show, uh, the same Tim Smith who was on the Grant miniseries uh, this week. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Tim's father was very ill in hospice care, and, and he had to attend to family matters and, and couldn't do the show last week. So we'll reschedule him for the fall season to talk about the Union Assaults of Vicksburg in May of 1863. But we've got a few more shows, another month's worth in this season. On June 3rd, a week from today, Christopher Klein will be telling us about the time the Irish invaded Canada. It's subtitled The Incredible True Story of the Civil War Veterans Who Fought for Ireland's Freedom. On the 10th, we'll welcome back to the show Matt Gallman, who edited, along with Gary Gallagher, two books. Uh, we talked to Gary last year about one of them. We'll talk to Matt about the other one this year called Lens of War, Exploring Iconic Photographs of the Civil War. On the 17th, Rachel Lance will 
describe her efforts to find out what really happened to the Confederate submarine Hunley. Uh, she's written a book called In the Waves, My Quest to Solve the Mystery of a Civil War Submarine. Uh, historian and engineer. We'll see what she has to say. And we'll wrap up the season with Kenneth R. Rutherford and his book on a topic that has really not been explored. It's called America's Buried History, Landmines in the Civil War. Well, tonight's book, uh, A Republic in the Ranks, I have been, I think, misstating on some of the last shows, leaving out the initial article. Uh, So I want to make clear that it does begin with the indefinite article, A Republic in the Ranks, subtitled Loyalty and Dissent in the Army of the Potomac, is written by Zachary Fry, who is our guest tonight. Uh, Dr. Fry, are you there? I'm right here. Thank you very much. Well, welcome to the show. Uh, Sorry I didn't give the full correct title of your book last week, uh, especially as the book I see has won the Edward M. Kaufman Prize from the Society for Military History. What is that prize uh, specifically for? That's a prize from the Society for Military History for um, the best first book manuscript um, of an individual uh, scholar looking at military history for that particular year. So this that tells me this is your first book. Um, presumably, it was a dissertation before that. It was yes. I uh, I completed this project uh, as my dissertation at Ohio State, actually. So I'm a Buckeye. Well, I'd say a, a warm, cheery go blue to you as a Wolverine. <laughs> Fair uh, enough. But I can certainly put up with that, and I, I uh, know some of the uh, the fine uh, military history. Civil War history people like Mark Grimsley at Ohio State That's who right. That's right. Uh, carried the banner there. Uh, so uh, that was your your school position. What what is your day job today? Please tell me you're not driving Uber. Uh, for no, living. no, no, no. Actually, um, I uh, I had a choice coming out of graduate school mm. with a couple different job offers where I could work in civilian academia, like so many professors do, or I could teach for the military. Um, and I decided to teach for the military. So I, I started out with a, a short-term uh, visiting position at West Point and then moved on to my current position where I teach military history to Army officers at the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. So I live and work in uh, Northern Virginia, right outside D.C., so how how is that? How uh, what what remind me what level of career are the students that you're talking that you're working sure with? sure they're all mid career officers they're right smack dab in the middle of their careers so they're making that very important transition from uh, junior officer company grade command up to field grade rank so they're they're just making the jump from captain to major. Um, so it's a really interesting time in their career and actually something that is pretty close to what I wrote about, um, in terms of the experience of civil war officers. Do you find your knowledge of what civil war officers did works, uh, you know, it has echoes with the the people you're dealing with today or, or more important, perhaps do they see, uh, similarities in what you're teaching them and what their own experiences are? 
To some extent, I think they probably do in, in terms of the fact that um, they're just now start it just now in their careers starting to um, grapple with sort of the larger policy dimensions of of their of their profession. Um, but I think one of the big differences that I noticed between the work that I did, the research that I did for this book, and then what these officers that I teach every day um, deal with is that, for the most part, I was talking in my book about volunteer officers, right? You know, guys who signed up, many of them as um, enlisted men themselves, or, or more frequently non-commissioned officers or even junior officers at the start of the war, after leaving you know, a, a position as a clerk or a lawyer or something like that, um, and going into the army as a volunteer. It's a very, very different dynamic from someone who's been in the military their whole life. Now, the topics you talk about in here, a lot of them are extremely timely. The the politicization of the military mm-hmm. uh, is certainly an issue that you write a great deal about, and we we see some of that with the the relief of the captain of an aircraft carrier and the re- resignation of the sec- acting secretary uh, of the navy over that issue, mm-hmm. uh, the issue over mail in ballots and and how they should that's be right. used. Uh, that's something you talk about it in the book considerably, and uh, even more the style of political argument where one's opponent in the situation you describe is not simply. An American we disagree with, but is a a traitor is a right uh, right is is an enemy of the people is scum of the earth is deplorable to use three terms from recent politics right um, that kind of language we haven't heard that since the Civil War but we're hearing it today. Yet when you started this book, none of that was current. I suppose that's true. I hadn't, I hadn't necessarily thought of that uh, coming out of the program tonight. But I think you're, I think you're on to something there. Um, and and like you said at the beginning, these are these are definitely my thoughts as an individual, not as a, not right, as an right. army educator. But um, I do think that um, I do think that there is a word of caution, perhaps, in the experience of the Civil War generation when it comes to the vociferousness of of politics. Um, even politics within an organization that was as structured as the military was supposed to be, uh, because so many of these folks who were in the military, so many of these officers and men were engaging, um, I think quite unbeknownst to a lot of historians for a long time, um, these men were engaging in the most raucous political debate, um, not only in the army itself, but more importantly, I think, in the broader northern public sphere, the newspapers um, and such uh, that the average northerner read during the war. And so, the, the, before I drop this line of, of, of thought, the fact that you started this book as a dissertation had to be you know, a half a dozen years ago uh, at a minimum. Uh, that's right. One of the fascinating things about history books is how often this happens. A book comes out, and you say, wow, that is really on point. That really speaks to what we're going through today. But people outside the field may think, oh, well, he he saw that was coming, so he wrote about it. Mm. Uh, But we don't have crystal balls. You have to write one of these things. You you start a book, and 
something caused you to tap into what was happening in such a way that this appealed to you. You started writing about it, and it worked out that now it's it's right on point. Um, it doesn't happen to every historian, obviously, <laughs> but uh, I, I'm fascinated how often it does that. that yeah. Uh, That's a good point. Something like this comes up. So the fact that there is this intense political conflict within uh, the Army of the Potomac in particular, which is your case study here, is, as you say, not widely known to historians, or at least not something we have written a great deal or talked a great deal about. And especially the fact that they interact with the public, the northern public. Uh, how, How do... I mean, they're at the front as soldiers. How do they interact with the, the public at home? Well, the most important thing that I found that they're doing to um, to influence public opinion, and they were very successful in this regard, is not just the letters that they're sending home sort of personally to their friends and family, although that's definitely important. Instead, what I found most interesting and most important was the fact that throughout the war, so many officers and men were sending letters home to newspapers, and the newspaper editors then, perhaps as we see sometimes now, were, more, were most interested in political messaging and partisanship, and these editors ate that stuff up and published it like crazy. So the, the, today, a, a person doing it, a serving officer writing essentially editorials for a local paper, right. uh, would be looked on askance, certainly, by the military establishment. Sure. Uh, and in fact, as you say in your book, there were, that was one of the divisions. Many of the, the West Point trained officers thought any engagement in politics was, was not the right thing for military men to be doing. We're going to take a short break as we do in the show each week. And we'll come back in just a minute and pick up on this and start going through some of the the critical moments in the history of the Army of the Potomac and its political maturation. We're talking tonight with Professor Zachary A. Fry. He is the author of A Republic in the Ranks, Loyalty and Dissent in the Army of the Potomac. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you? It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemond Williams. Each week, join Lemond as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific. Pacific for Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. 
Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking tonight with Zachary A. Fry, author of A Republic in the Ranks, Loyalty and Dissent in the Army of the Potomac. Zachary, when these soldiers, volunteers enter the army, uh, initially, do they come in with a political sensibility? How, how widespread is political engagement among these, these people when they first come into the Army of the Potomac? Sure. It's a, it's a great bus, uh, question, and it's an important one, I think, because uh, what I found was that the vast majority of the rank and file, most of them you know, around the age of 19, 20, um, were not particularly mature, politically speaking. Um, they certainly entered the war with maybe a broad general understanding of, of the partisanship um, that had torn the country apart, but their patriotism was a simple one. You know, the flag had been attacked. This was the opportunity to get out and see the world. This was the opportunity to do what all your friends were doing, um, to get out, have an adventure. And that it was really the junior officers, so the ones coming in as lieutenants and captains and majors and so forth, who were the ones... Um, they were the ones coming in with the mature political sensibilities. They were the ones who were a little bit better educated, a little bit older. Um, they were the ones who had seen a little bit more of what partisanship in America had to offer. Uh, and so that dynamic between the officers who knew a little bit more about the policy dimension of this conflict and the enlisted men who really didn't yet um, was it, you know, really was what made things so fascinating for me. And these officers are, in fact, elected by the same men that they're about to uh, engage politically. That, that's right. And that's always something when I talk to my Army officers as students, um, when I tell <laughs> them about, they, I mean, that's the one that really, that really, drops their jaws to the floor because um, we talk about it in, in class in the context of the French Revolution because this is something that happened very much uh, in the French field armies of the 1790s. The enlisted men voted on the junior officers who would lead their companies quite often in, the, in, 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 that, um, in that example. And then the junior officers would get together and vote on the field grade officers, the lieutenant colonels and, and, and colonels. Um, these recommendations, more or less, the results of these votes would be sent to the state governors in the case of 
the Union Army in the Civil War um, for the governor to award commissions. Um, so it was very much a state-driven process, of course. And the interesting result is that the governors being the ones awarding the commissions, um, all of these state archives uh, in Harrisburg and Albany and Columbus, um, where I got to spend a lot of time researching, that's where all of the petitions and vote totals and letters um, surrounding this phenomenon survive. And so if you want to understand how tremendously essential politics was to the junior officer experience in the Civil War, all you have to do is go look at some of these papers, which are sort of innocuously titled the Adjutant General's Papers, mm -hmm. um, because, of course, the Adjutant General for the state was the one across whose desk all of these papers flew on their way to, to the, up to the governor's desk. Um, and so you just see constant petitions and letters um, uh, you know, supporting a particular officer candidate's um, loyalty to the Constitution if he's a Democrat, loyalty to the Lincoln administration oftentimes if he's a Republican. Um, and so it's just fascinating to see that dynamic play out. So these officers are being selected in part on their political uh, views, even as they come in. But at the top of the Army of the Potomac, you, you've got, uh, shortly after after Bull Run, you've got uh, George McClellan, who you you seem to suggest he's trying to keep politics out of the Army, uh, keep, make it a, a West Point-style, uh, apolitical body that just does the will of the civilian government. But what he thinks of as no politics at all are, are really his politics. That's right. That's right. I think that's a good way to put it. It's it's um, uh, it's an interesting situation where McClellan himself, who um, is very much a a conservative and certainly by 1861 a staunch Democrat, um, is trying. To, he sees politics, partisanship, um, as the root of all indiscipline in the army because he's a regular army officer. He believes in reason and order. He believes in um, keeping partisanship out of the military. And to some extent, you know, he, he might have some success there, but to a large extent as well, he's keeping particular tabs on Republican efforts to um, to influence the army. So very early on in the war, he is trying to keep a lid on um, the extent to which abolitionists are interacting with the army. Um, he doesn't necessarily love this idea of state governors, the vast majority of whom are Republican in 1860 and 61, um, influencing officer appointments in the army. Um, so yeah, for, for McClellan, Keeping partisanship out of the military uh, really is about keeping Republican Party sentiment out of the army, I think. And he actually controls what newspapers can come into camp. That's right. He, he, um, he makes a point early on in the war, uh, he and his staff do, to make sure that they, uh, they sign off on all the Sutler passes and newspaper agent passes that are gaining access to the army. 
That's right. Because, of course, there are Republican papers and Democratic papers um, and very little in between. Um, so most of the big journals of record, the East Coast papers that McClellan wanted to see in the army were the ones he considered the least problematic or the least sensationalist or polemicist. And those would have been the Democratic papers. And, and I guess there's another link to the 21st century. We're in an era where every news source is identified either by its supporters or its opponents as being partisan for one side or the other. That's right. Uh, and, and the era we all grew up in of, of the, a theoretically objective or neutral me- media, which of course was, was always honored in the breach, but still was an ideal, uh, was really a fleeting moment in American history. It certainly doesn't exist in the Civil War. Uh, if, if you're reading the New York Tribune or the uh, New York World, uh, you know exactly what you're getting. And, and uh, a paper has a very clear editorial viewpoint and, and doesn't distinguish it from, from the news gathering function either. The news stories are just as overtly slanted as the, there's no separate editorial page, I guess, uh, is what I'm saying. So you've got these, the, McCollum's keeping an eye on the politics of his army. You, you divide your book into chapters where each one looks at a moment in the army's political uh, development mostly after the great battles. And people who are listening to this program already have a mind's eye view of what happened in the seven days, what happened at Antietam, what happened at Gettysburg. And so you spend a page, you know, describing that, and it's all we need to to put that in context. It's after seven days uh, battles, after McClellan's got the army down to Harrison's Landing on the James River, uh, after his so-called change of base, his retreat across the peninsula, that's where the army has time to sit for weeks and start to mull over something's not right here. That's exactly right. And um, uh, basically what the army experiences in that six week or so period after the seven days is um, a period of an awful lot of frustration, an awful lot of, of anger, uh, really. Because it was almost unthinkable for a lot of these recruits and, and, and officers in the Army that, my God, here we were. We were on the outskirts of Richmond. We had the Confederacy, we had the Confederate Army on its heels outside Richmond. And it didn't work. We're back here at Harrison's Landing. God knows when we're going to start this war, you know, start, start this campaign over again. And so, both sides of the political divide, such as it existed at that early, relatively early point in the war, um, started pointing fingers at the other side. Democrats started saying that, uh, you know, the Lincoln administration, because of these early steps toward emancipation, like the Second Confiscation Act that was passing Congress and some of the other things, um, the the Republican Party was agitating to turn this war into something that it wasn't meant to be a war for emancipation. Republicans on the other side looked at Democrats and said, you know, my goodness, look at what, look at, look at what horrible generalship McClellan has displayed. Look at the abject unwillingness on the part of Northerners back on the home front to really, um, really contribute to this war in earnest. Um, there has to be something wrong 
there has to be something rotten with this army or with this or with this war effort somehow. And all the while, a lot of these Republicans and a lot of these um, enlisted men are struggling with having to, you know, protect Southern property because McClellan doesn't want to alienate um, Southern civilians any more than he absolutely has to under a conciliatory policy. They're watching slavery right before their eyes. Um, and a lot of them are sick. I mean, they're, they're confined in this pathetic little camp. Um, they're at Harrison's Landing in the swamps and the meadows of Harrison's Landing with all manner of, of, of illness um, and poor supplies. Uh, and they're frustrated. And the political wrangling that you see appear in mid-1862 um, demonstrates that frustration, that very real frustration that they experience after the seven days. And the uh, while the focus of your book is on the, the junior officers of the Army and their, their relationship with their soldiers, uh, you do also touch on how this certainly plays out in the upper ranks, and others have, have focused on that. Stephen Tafe comes to mind. Sure. Uh, people have written about the commanders of the Army of the Potomac. But when when McClellan reorganizes the army, adds a, a, who's a fifth and a sixth corps, mm-hmm. uh, and appoints Porter and Franklin to command them. Those are people who are also not coincidentally uh, conservative Democrats that align politically with McClellan. And much of the selection of corps commanders has a lot to do with where they fall politically. So you, you've you've got this army that's that, that's certainly uh, becoming more politically aware, but they, they all still love McClellan at this point, even after seven days, as I was what I gathered. Yeah, I mean, I think most of them do. There's certainly some Republican junior officers, um, uh, like I mentioned at the beginning, those who had come into the war with strong Republican proclivities who, who saw what McClellan was sort of all about and didn't necessarily subscribe to it. Uh, but yeah, I think the vast majority of of soldiers in the Army of the Potomac and and even junior officers, perhaps at this point uh, in the in the war, genuinely and earnestly did believe that McClellan was the right man for the job. Um, and a lot of that was because so many soldiers and 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 officers um, viewed what was happening back in Washington as sort of. Uh, unhelpful political wrangling, uh, especially the, the soldiers. They viewed what was happening in Washington between Republicans and Democrats as just sort of an embarrassment, something that was really hurting the Union war effort. This disunity on the home front was really hurting the war effort. Um, and so it was sort of the political class at large that they were frustrated with. Jumping ahead, uh, the battles uh, take place at uh, Second Manassas, and then, of course, Antietam. Mm. The Emancipation Proclamation is issued, and then uh, after the fall elections of 1862, McClellan is out. The soldiers are still loyal to him at this point, uh, but you suggest that, that there's a lot more agitation, political agitation, uh, in that quiet period in the war after Antietam, uh, between Antietam and Fredericksburg in uh, October, November of 1862. What, what 
is what's on the soldier's mind at that point? In late 1862, yeah. it's 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 definitely. Um, you know, it's definitely emancipation. It's definitely some frustration still with disunity on on the home front as well. And that might seem sort of um, sort of hypocritical to our you know to our notion today of what's happening on the northern home front, um, because of course there's a there's a, a slowly emerging Copperhead anti-war presence um, on the northern home front that a lot of Republicans. And even some war Democrats are anxious to disavow. Um, so that's starting to frustrate the army. Uh, but by and large, they still perceive politicking to mean the sort of partisan wrangling that results in, as far as they're concerned, McClellan's removal. Um, so they are very frustrated that they lose McClellan because they see it as the result of simple, um, unabashed political wrangling. In these elections in 1862, uh, the the midterm elections, which the Democrats do very well in, the soldiers could the soldiers participate in those elections? Very few, very few soldiers could have participated in the 1862 elections, and that's a a very uh, important point as far as the the Union soldiers' political experience was concerned, because um, really right up through 1863, uh, relatively few. Union soldiers were entitled to vote at the front as far as their own states were concerned. Um, Democrats, even though they didn't hold many governor's mansions, still had lots of influence in the state legislatures and state assemblies. And the Democrats very um, uh, very successfully, in some cases, managed to argue for particular constitutional technicalities that prevented soldiers from voting. In other words, well, you're not allowed to vote at the front because our state constitution says you, know, you you left the state borders for more than six months or something like that, so you can't vote. Uh, so soldiers were very frustrated with that. And, and that's one of those things that does seem most ridiculous when read today, the idea that these, these are the men who are fighting for the country, right. and they don't get to vote. Uh, they don't get to they, vote. It truly seems outrageous. Well, we're going to take another short break and come back. Uh, I want to ask you about what you regard as the critical moment in the transition of mm. politics within the Army. Uh, we're talking today with Zachary A. Fry, author of A Republic in the Ranks, Loyalty and Dissent in the Army of the Potomac. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Zachary A. Fry, author of A Republic in the Ranks, Loyalty and Dissent in the Army of the Potomac. We've been talking about the the split the the politics the good old fashioned democrats versus republicans republican politics within the army of the potomac uh, which doesn't really fully bubble to the surface until uh, you describe in your book as the critical moment in the army's history after the battle of fredericksburg in december 1862 the the next few months january february march april of 63 uh, why is that critical? What, what's happening at that time, and what changes? Well, the the, uh, the defeat at Fredericksburg was a, was of course a a tremendous emotional experience for the Army of the Potomac. Um, it was devastating. The aftermath um, uh, with the mud march uh, was uh, frustrating. Uh, and as I mentioned uh, just before the break, with the um, the widespread frustration with the political class as a result of McClellan's dismissal, the army was really primed for an enemy. The army was really primed to uh, unleash some sort of, of its, uh, some, some, some of its frustration uh, on an opponent on the home front. Uh, and enter, of course, the Copperhead Movement uh, in late 1862 and early 1863. The uh, the radical anti-war wing of the Democratic Party, which had taken the midterm elections in 1862 as something of an indication that public sentiment was starting to turn against Lincoln and against the war that, in fact, the army was waging on the battlefront. And so what happened was um, numerous state legislatures, such as New Jersey and Indiana and Illinois, um, passed resolutions denouncing the war effort and, in effect, declaring the war a failure. And this absolutely, um, absolutely offended the army at the front. Uh, and so the army uh, unleashed a torrent of opinion pieces in the newspapers and official resolutions of its own. Uh, there were, I counted up, over 60. Uh, regiments in the Army of the Potomac that drafted official resolutions 
denouncing the Copperhead movement and the Democratic Party. So it was a really, really important moment uh, moment for the Army's political development. I thought that was one of the most interesting things in the book. The the I don't know, discovery is not the right word. People knew some of these had happened. Mm-hmm. But putting yeah. together this collection of, of 61 uh, separate regiment or brigade size political meetings, they're, right. they're, not, they're not military org- organizations temporarily, but they resolve into political bodies, they vote, uh, sometimes unanimously, sometimes by a large majority, mm-hmm. and say this is how we feel, and Again, it's quite alien to what we think of the military doing today. Of, uh, oh, completely, yeah. A platoon or a company voting on how they feel on a particular political issue and telling, uh, and telling not their superiors, but telling the folks back home. Right. Uh, which, so what, what do they say in these? Uh, do, do they say we're in favor of, of Lincoln and the Republicans? Are they for emancipation? What, what, what specifically... How far do they go? Yeah, yeah. It, it, it depended largely on the unit, uh, which is to say it depended largely on the officers leading a particular unit, a particular regiment or company oftentimes, how radical that officer was, how much they were willing to try to prod their enlisted men into a particular uh, political um, uh, a, a political sentiment or not. But by and large, they all pretty much avowed um, – a, a, a very strong commitment to the Lincoln administration. So that was that was certainly number one. That was at the top of the list. Um, and with it, a very uh, pronounced dedication to fighting the war along the lines of hard war, uh, which is to say taking the war to the enemy, uprooting slavery if necessary. Um, although sometimes these officers in drafting these resolutions would talk about it in more euphemistic language, probably to appeal to a broader base. So they would say things like, uh, we support a vigorous prosecution of the war. Uh, we support the proclamations of the president, um, that sort of a language. Uh, mm-hmm. So the, many, many of them talked about that. Um, dozens of these resolutions talked about the war in specifically um, religious overtones, which is to say, they were they were talking about the the holy cause of uh, of the United States or or the crusade of the United States against the unholy rebellion. Um, so there was very much a crusading aspect to the politics that these soldiers were um, uh, were 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 appealing to. And then uh, the last thing that they really um, that, that really unified these resolutions was an absolute contempt for the Copperheads to the extent that they really called on Northerners on the home front to shun the Copperheads. Uh, and many resolutions stated that if the citizens at home weren't willing to shun the Copperheads, the soldiers themselves were willing to march home and do what was necessary to take care of the Copperheads. So that, as one Pennsylvania Reserve unit put it, the only right we grant to traitors is the right to die. That sort of language appears in these resolutions constantly. So, And, and they're not talking just about traitors south of the Mason-Dixon line, that they're fighting with muskets. They're talking about, as you say, Copperheads, uh, anti-war Democrats in their own hometowns. So, uh, yeah, things are getting to quite a point there. 
I want to jump ahead because we only have uh, so much time left, and there's sure. so so much interesting stuff in this book. I really enjoyed it thoroughly. Uh, the Battle of Gettysburg, you describe both as Union against Confederate, but also uh, the fact that you have, by this time, the, the core of the army each are developing their own political personalities. Mm-hmm. Second, fifth, and sixth corps are democratic in their leadership and mm-hmm. rank and file compared to first, third, eleventh corps. Twelfth corps seems more Republican. That's right. Uh, I was struck by the fact that the the Council of War, uh, the of Meade's generals that voted not to attack when they had uh, Lee pinned up against the Potomac uh, after the Battle of Gettysburg. Right. Uh, you you just touched on this. You mentioned that they they voted on party lines. Uh, the Democrats presumably not to attack the Republicans to be aggressive. That's right. But let me skip even further ahead. Uh, there's fascinating stuff about the draft riot and the regiments that are sent there. By the by by the end of 1863, it appears that the uh, Republican cause is dominating the the soldiers' political thoughts uh, for all the reasons we've talked about, especially the opposition to the Copperheads back home. And then a couple things go the other way. A lot of Republican active uh, officers are killed at Gettysburg. Democrats are as well. Uh, The 11th and 12th Corps get sent to the Western Theater. And so you have this moment, which I thought was one of the most interesting bits in the whole story of a decision to get a testimonial together for yes. uh, for McClellan. And this is something that, that was done. He, he, all the soldiers would chip in and buy a, a, a sword or a horse, even for some leader, colonel or, or general. What Tell us about the McClellan testimonial. Oh my God! I, I think it's probably the most interesting. It was definitely the most interesting part of this book for me to write. It, um, it, I, I, I would agree. Yes, I, I still I still find it fascinating, um, and it's it's not easy to find a lot about um, because it was it was a very quick episode in the Army's history. It only took a few days, really, in September of eighteen sixty three, mm-hmm. uh, and what basically happened is that some officers. Uh, at Army Headquarters and at 6th Corps Headquarters. And 6th Corps Headquarters, John Sedgwick's headquarters, actually housed McClellan's own younger brother as a staff officer, it turned out, mm. Arthur McClellan. But And so Arthur McClellan's letters tell us a lot about this effort and makes it quite clear that Meade was sort of in on it as commander of the Army of the Potomac. But basically what happened was um, several officers at headquarters decided it would be a good idea to collect a really staggering sum of money, something on the order of, of ultimately probably about eighty to ninety thousand dollars in eighteen sixty three money, okay, mm-hmm. which is I, I I hesitate even to hazard a guess, but we're probably we're probably somewhere on the order of like one point five million in today's mm-hmm. money. I mean, it's a it's a it's a staggering sum of money um, to give to George B. McClellan. And, you know, you say, well, maybe it's a sword. Well, it would have to be one heck of a sword. <laughs> it's a big sword, yeah. And so um, so they they actually print a circular, a memorandum, um, at headquarters, distribute it to uh, every unit in the Army, and say something along the lines of, you know, we expect general officers to contribute $25. We expect, um, uh, you know, 
colonels and captains and and sergeants all the way down to contribute a, a, a graduated amount, you know, so that enlisted men donate something like 25 cents or something. But it's it once you add this up in an army of 80 or 90,000 men, it's a lot of money. And so um, what happens is that immediately pro-administration forces within the army um, rally against this thing because they sense that this is this is going to humiliate the Republicans and the Lincoln administration. After all, the Republicans were the ones who called for McClellan to be dismissed, and here the army is propping him up, it seems. So the army does this. Um, it, it tries to, to raise a testimonial. Republicans in the army uh, call foul, publish resolutions against the whole thing in Republican newspapers. The Lincoln administration finds out on the same day, practically, that Meade is recalled to Washington to talk about sending two corps out west, I'd have loved to have been a fly on the wall in the White House during that meeting. <laughs> and, um, and, and I think what's most interesting is that just a few weeks after this, what should have been like the high watermark of the Army's um, love for George B. McClellan, or at least what Democrats in the Army thought was going to be the high watermark, just a few weeks after this, the gubernatorial campaign in Pennsylvania comes to a head, and the Democratic candidate is, in the Army's eyes, a copperhead. And lo and behold, on Election Day, McClellan publishes a letter endorsing this guy, and the Army is livid. And as far as the old soldiers in the Army of the Potomac are concerned, the, you know, the original enlistees from 1861, McClellan is dead to them. It's a really striking moment in the Army's history between this McClellan testimonial and the election of 1863. It, it really is. It, it's not often you get this kind of closure where something shows up so clearly. Here's where you, you get, you quote soldiers writing letters home. I used to admire this man. Now I right. don't. Yeah. Uh, it's just all out there. The perceptive listener will say, we haven't even talked about the 1864 election, and isn't that a big chunk of the book? And the answer is yes, and there's some fascinating stuff in which you take issue with uh, scholars at either end of the spectrum, uh, the James McPherson on one side, uh, mm -hmm. Jonathan White on the other, as to how uh, how the soldiers really felt in terms of voting and in terms of re-enlisting in 1864 and while normally we would I'm not we're not leaving those out tonight because I don't want to cover them or because <laughs> I plan to run out of time but because there's so much this I read a lot of dissertations I read a lot of uh, master's theses here at ECU and then I read a lot of dissertations that become books and the 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 good ones have organization going for them uh, the bad ones don't have good writing. This is one of the good ones. This book is so well organized that I could tell where everything was going, but still it was so well written. It was interesting to follow it going there. Uh, the testimonial story is an interesting one. There are so many other good ones in here. Uh, I can see why it got the Kaufman Prize. I really enjoyed this. Listeners, since we haven't talked about what uh, Zachary Fry has to say about uh, the election or uh, the reenlistment numbers, you have to buy the book yourself to read it and find <laughs> out. Uh, you will not be disappointed if you have any interest in this topic at all. I really, uh, really did thoroughly enjoy it and, and highly recommend it. Um, 
I, w- I wish we had more time. Uh, I wish we could talk about your next project and everything else, but we are, alas, at the end of our time. So I will just say thank you so much for being on Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.